Andy Gullihorn and Gabe Scott are a couple of musicians from Nashville, Tennessee. They're part of the Christian music scene in Nashville, Tennessee. They, I first got introduced to their music when they were on tour with Andrew Peterson, one of my favorite Christian singer-songwriters who has one of the best Christmas albums I've ever heard, Behold the Lamb of God. I know it's a little bit early to talk about Christmas music, but it's never too early to talk about Christmas music. And so every year, Gabe Scott and Andy Gullihorn would go on tour with Andy, Andrew Peterson on this tour of Behold the Lamb of God. And every year they'd go on tour and say, man, I love hanging out with you. We should do this more often. We're both from Nashville. There's no excuse for why we can't get together. And they'd say, yeah, we absolutely need to do this. And then 11 months would go by and they'd be on tour again and say, man, it's so fun to hang out with you. We should hang out more often. You know, we're, we're in the same city. There's no reason why we can't. And another 11 months would go by. I'm sure this doesn't happen to you, but to a lot of us, this happens where we have good intentions and plans and never put anything on the calendar and it doesn't happen. So finally, after a couple of years of saying this and, and enjoying being on tour together, they were together with uh, Andy and, uh, and Gabe and their wives and their families. And uh, Gabe mentioned to Andy that he had just moved into Andy's neighborhood. Now they lived about a mile and a half apart. He says, now we, now we have to. There's no excuse. And their wives were talking about CBS Sunday morning. I don't know if there's any CBS Sunday morning fans in the room, but uh, I never get to see it because I'm, as a pastor, occupied on Sunday mornings. But their wives both loved it. They'd record it and watch it later on after church. And it's kind of a, it's not like news. It's not covering politics and that sort of thing. It's more of a human interest story news show on Sunday mornings. And so Gabe's wife and Andy's wife loved it. And they were talking about their show. And that's when Andy had a, a flash of brilliance. And he said, I've got an idea. This year, every week on Monday mornings, we should meet for a high five. And if we meet halfway, if we leave our houses and walk halfway and have a high five at the park that's halfway between our houses, and if we do that every week for like 10 years, eventually that's the kind of story that they share on CBS Sunday morning, and we can make it onto our wives' favorite TV show. And Gabe said, all right, I'm game. So on Monday morning, they texted each other, okay, I'm leaving the house, I'll meet you there. And, and like I said, there's this park halfway between their houses, and so they'd, they'd meet on the sidewalk and They'd share a high five, and then they'd hang out in the park for a little while. They'd shoot hoops. They'd sit on a park bench and chat. And the next week, they text each other, okay, I'm leaving the house. I'll meet you at the park. And eventually, they realized that if we're going to meet every week for a high five, we can't just have a high five. We've got to have something like our, a signature high five. And so they eventually landed on clap, snap, high five. So they'd meet up on the sidewalk, and it would be clap, snap, high five, and that'd be what they share. But, you know, some weeks they were busy and didn't have enough time for the whole hanging out, shooting uh, hoops at the park. And so they invented what they called the silent high five, where they would still leave their house. They'd still text each other that were leaving, and they'd still meet on the sidewalk at the park. But the rule was, when they crossed, they were not allowed to acknowledge each other. They were supposed to act like they were perfect strangers, no smiling, no, no eye contact, nothing like that. And after they got past each other, 20 steps, they were to take 20 steps after each other, and once they got to 20, they were to turn around like this at the same time, and then they'd face each other, and that's when they did the, snap, the clap, snap, high five. And still without saying anything, still without laughing or smiling or anything like that. And they said that they viewed this as kind of a gift to the community, a gift to the neighborhood, that as people are out washing their cars or walking their dogs or as they're out drinking their morning coffee, they'd see these two men pass each other like strangers on the sidewalk, turn around, and give each other a high five. I, I think I'd probably sell my house if I saw that happening in my neighborhood. But, uh, but to each his own. And actually, earlier this year, they started doing this in 2014, the snap, clap, high five on the, on the sidewalk half between, halfway between their houses. And earlier this year, just as they predicted, CBS Sunday Morning covered these two friends who meet every week for a high five. 
what makes a couple of middle-aged dads meeting for a high five every week a story worth it? I mean, I feel silly telling you this story. I can't imagine actually living it. I can't imagine proposing it, having my friends say, we should meet every week for a high five. It seems so silly and strange. What makes it worth telling? I'll tell you what. We are a connection-deprived society. We are a relationally starved culture. And this was true before the pandemic. Loneliness and, and isolation at all-time high levels. And after the year that we've experienced, it has just grown like crazy. And so when we hear the story of a couple of middle-aged dads going for a walk every Monday morning for a high five, it touches a nerve deep in our heart that we want that kind of connection. We want that kind of relationship. We want somebody that we can meet every day, every week for seven years for a high five. We're starting a new series today called One Another, where we're going to be looking over the next few weeks at some of the one another commands of the New Testament. The New Testament commands us, you know, there's a, a vertical aspect to our relationship with God as we, as we relate to God directly. And then there's a horizontal aspect to our relationship with God and how we treat one another and how we relate to one another. And the Bible is full of dozens of these one another commands about how we are, how we are to love one another and to treat one another and respect one another. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks kind of recalibrating our rhythms about how we do this relationship, how we relate to one another. And we're going to start this morning in Luke chapter 24 at the end of Luke's gospel as there are a couple of the early disciples who had their minds just totally turned upside down, had their hearts torn in, in pieces. And appropriately, it begins with a walk. We're going to see this at Luke chapter 24. Let me pray for us as we jump in. Thanks God for this morning and for the, the opportunity to lift our voices to you in song and to be together. As we open up your word, speak to us, we pray in your name. Amen. Luke 24, beginning of verse 13, says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. Now this is the Sunday, Easter Sunday, the very first Easter Sunday, 48 hours after the crucifixion, the, the resurrection is mere hours old, and Jesus is so playful with them. What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I love this scene. We believe that this is Cleopas and Mary, a, a married couple, Cleopas the husband, Mary the wife, and that they're making this seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And as they're walking, they had, they had their hopes pinned on Jesus. They thought that he was the one. They were sure that he was the one who was going to come and save the world. And they had gone to Jerusalem with their hearts full of these hopes and expectations. And then swiftly and dramatically and violently, Jesus is arrested and brutally murdered 
thrown in the grave and all their hopes are dashed. And then this is the Sunday, the very first Easter Sunday. They're beginning to hear the first reports that Jesus is alive. They're beginning to hear the first reports that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is beginning to appear to people. And they're so confused. And this is a really important note for us to make that the early disciples, the early witnesses to the resurrection were not gullible. They were not naive. They knew how death worked. They knew the laws of biology and science that when a body dies, it stays dead. When the Roman Empire wants to snuff you out, you're in trouble. And when you're laid in the grave that you don't suddenly wake up again later. They knew how all that worked. They weren't gullible. They weren't naive. It's not like they were ignorant of the facts. And it made it all the more unbelievable. And they hear these people that they know and that they trust saying, we've seen him. And it's mere hours after the first reports of the resurrection are starting to take form. And as they're walking and processing and their heads are spinning and their hearts are heavy, along comes Jesus. And it's, I, I love how playful Jesus is with them as he goes, right? It's like this, it, the resurrected Jesus is having fun. As he walks up and says, what are you talking about? He knows what they're talking about. And they say, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. What else is there to talk about? And he's like, Jesus? Is that how you pronounce it? Jesus from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And he's kind of playing with them as he's going along and just kind of roping them in. And as they're sharing everything that's going on in their hearts and, and sharing their heartache, then he gets serious. Then playful Jesus gets serious. And he starts unpacking the scriptures, pulling out from the Old Testament, pulling out from Moses and the prophets, all these deep truths and prophecies that foretold how everything happened just as it was going to happen how everything that Jesus had been telling during his lifetime and his teachings, he pulls these all out and reminds them again, this is what, how it was going to be. This is how it was going to happen. And all the while, they have no idea who it is. They don't realize who it is that it's Jesus. And you'd think that unwittingly going on a walk with the resurrected Jesus would be the highlight of the story, right? But Jesus is just getting started. Look at verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. Again, he's kind of playing with them. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. So they make the seven-mile journey. They're walking along. It's getting late in the day. And they're, they're stopping off at their house. And Jesus is like, all right, see you later. I got places to go, things to do, and playing with them. And they know that he's not from their community because they would have recognized him otherwise. And they're saying, no, 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 no. You need to come in with us. You need to stay with us. We need to let us show you hospitality. Come into our home with us for a while. And this leads us to the one another command we're talking about together this week. And this is the, the, the one another of hos, offer hospitality to one another from 1 Peter 4. Offer hospitality to one another. And when, when Cleopas and Mary invite Jesus in, they're, they're expressing their hospitality. There's a strong sense of an urge and a conviction that hospitality mattered and was deeply important in Jewish culture. And they said, no, no, no. We, if you're a stranger without a place to be, we have to. We're under obligation to invite you in. If we're out of habit when it comes to hospitality as a culture. The hospitality industry has been hit hard over the past year. And even us, we've had fewer people in our homes and have received fewer invitations and we're figuring out creative ways. We meet each other. Are you shaking hands? Are you fist bumping? How are we doing this? Are we knocking elbows? What's happening here? We're out of habit when it comes to hospitality. So this week, as the CDC is beginning to loosen some guidelines and as the, sun, as the weather is warming up and we're able to gather more on porches and patios, it's a great opportunity, an opportunity for us to say, let's offer hospitality to one another. Let's find creative ways to offer hospitality to one another. And as we get talking this morning, I need to settle one thing right up front, one baseline conviction that's going to guide everything else we talk about, and it's this. Hospitality is spelled F-O-O-D. 
Hospitality is all about food. There are a lot of things involved with expressing hospitality, about sharing hospitality. You may have to vacuum. You may need to give the dog a bath. You may need to have the kids clean up the room. If you got somebody staying with you, you may need to make a bed. But if your hospitality does not include food, try again. You're doing it wrong. Hospitality in every culture looks many different ways, but it always, across every culture and continent, hospitality always involves food. It involves having people over and spreading the table, whether it's hors d'oeuvres or appetizers or pizza rolls. We always share food and we express hospitality. That's a baseline understanding here. And hospitality is spelled F-O-O-D. And as we look at the Bible, we see just how big of a deal food is when it comes to hospitality because we need to pay attention. Second thing, we need to pay attention anytime Jesus has a meal. Whenever we see Jesus have a meal, we ought to perk up and pay attention. And, and you know, Jesus appears as the resurrected in his resurrected form walking along this road. But when he walks into their home, the words that Mary and Cleopas say is, come stay with us. But what they really mean is, come eat with us. Come let us feed you. Let's, you're walking on this long journey. You've been walking seven miles. You need to eat something. Come on in and have food with us. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John fill their gospels with stories about Jesus sitting at dining room tables and and sharing food and breaking bread with other people. Over and over again, Jesus is seen not just teaching in the synagogues and the temple courts and in in the public square, but at tables eating food. Some of his most prominent places of ministry are not in the synagogues and the temple courts and the public square, but in homes, at tables, so that any student of the Bible ought to see Jesus sitting down at the table and say, oh, it's about to get good. Something's about to happen. Jesus is up to something good. Pay attention now to this. When Jesus sits down to a meal, it's like Captain America picking up his his shield. When Jesus sits down for a meal, it's like Batman jumping in the Batmobile. When Jesus sits down for a meal, it's like Indiana Jones taking off his glasses and putting on his hat. When Jesus sits down for a meal, it's like Cookie Monster opening up a box of Oreos. You know it's about to happen. You know he's about to dig into something big. And over and over again, Jesus is teaching in parables and he's teaching in commands and he's welcoming in sinners and sitting with tax collectors and the Pharisees and the religious leaders and welcoming people in and, and challenging those who are complacent and comforting those who are, who are troubled and deeply sore. When Jesus sits down for a meal, we know something's about to happen. In Jesus' day, meals were very much a part of the hierarchy about establishing who you were and who you fit with and, and how you belonged and who you accepted by sharing table fellowship with them. That's why he got in so much trouble at meals. Because the, the holy people would see him eating with sinners and say, I can't believe you're eating with those people. And he knew exactly what he was doing when he opened up his table and when he invite, accepted an invitation to Zacchaeus' house. When he went to Matthew's house, a tax collector, and broke bread with him. And he's up to something good at the table. Because Jesus knew the third thing that meals are the glue of relationships. One of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson, said that sharing meals mixes conversation and calories in a way that makes them both better. That somehow when we sit down at a table and talk over a meal, the conversation flows better, the food tastes better, and it makes the whole process, the whole experience more engaging and more meaningful for our lives by mixing conversation and calories. Even kale tastes better when you eat it with friends. At least they have somebody to complain to about it. But when the dining room table gets moved from the center of the home to the margins of our family life, when the dining room table gets moved from the heartbeat of our homes to the place where we just balance the checkbook or do homework or read the paper, we're missing out on something. When we keep the family table at the center of our homes and of our lives and we make it a place where we gather and we take our time 
and we eat together and we look each other in the eyes, something breaks loose. And Jesus knew that. I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus spent so much time sitting at tables because there's a different kind of connection that happens when we're sitting across each other from a table breaking bread together. Well, one of the reasons why Mary and Cleopas invited Jesus in was because of this deep conviction about hospitality and a sense that we see even in the New Testament that many who have entertained strangers have entertained angels in, the, in so doing. And their hospitality is rewarded immediately in the next verse, verse 30. It says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them too. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and immediately he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? It's, I love this scene where Jesus now, after this long journey and, and kind of playfully saying, no, I've got a place to be, I need to go along. And they still throughout this whole time haven't recognized who Jesus is. It's, it's interesting that Jesus, as the guest in their home, turns the tables, no pun intended, by being the one that breaks the bread and gives it to them. Jesus, the guest, has taken on the role of host. And he shares this with them and immediately their eyes are open. Immediately they recognize who he is. And no sooner do they recognize who he is when he disappears. He's gone. He's out of there. And this, just picture this in your mind, the scene of this couple, Mary and Cleopas, sitting there together at their table and all their doubts have vanished into hopes. All their doubts have turned into awe and worship. All their doubts have dissipated into resurrection wonder. And it happened at the meal. Jesus taught a lot of tables. Jesus taught a lot over, over meals and taught parables and challenged people, but he's got one more lesson for us, and this is the Last Supper. Do this. When Jesus was looking for a way to explain to his disciples what his death meant, he had taught them, he had told them, he had described this in many different ways throughout his ministry, and it never quite took hold. They never quite got it. And on the 11th, in the 11th hour, on the night he was to be betrayed, within mere hours of his arrest, within moments of his arrest, within hours of his brutal murder, he wanted to tell them one more time, this is what my death means. This is what's about to happen, and here's what it means. And he didn't drop a chart. He didn't pull out a dry erase board. He didn't give one more sermon. He set a table. He said, this is my body, broken for you. This is my blood, poured out for you. Take and eat. Drink all of it in remembrance of me. And in that scene with Jesus with his disciples in the upper room, one of the things that always strikes me is you would think that he would feel the urgency. He'd feel time slipping away, that he would feel the, the, the sense of hurry creeping up in him. But instead, he's the calmest person in the room that night sitting there at the table as his disciples are gathered, as he's teaching them about the, the, the cup and the bread and all of the symbolism that's tied up in his death. He's taking his time and it's leisurely and it's slow and he is in no hurry. If we're going to get our meals right and if we're going to get his meal right, we're going to need to slow down or else we might just outrun Jesus. The Lord's Supper was never intended to be fast food. So we need to slow down when we come to his table and when we come to our table. So, hospitality is spelled F-O-O-D and meals are, 
how we show hospitality as followers of Jesus. Meals are one of the primary places that we see Jesus teaching and laughing and, and talking and challenging people. Meals mix conversation and calories in a way that make both of them better. The conversation flows better. The, the food tastes better. We enjoy this mix of conversation and calories. A meal was the way that Jesus chose to show what his death really meant and what it was really all about. And as a result, whenever Christ followers join together for a meal, you just never know when Jesus might show up in our midst and join us at a, at a seat at that table and he loves to be invited. We are a relationally starved society. We have relationally starved marriages and families and neighborhoods. And when you're learning to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, start at his table. And when you're looking to love your neighbor as yourself, start at your table. And the Lord himself will meet us at both of those tables. So we're going to go to the table this morning, the Lord's table. But before we do, I want to talk about your table for a moment. I mentioned Eugene Peterson earlier who, who said the thing he said about conversation and calories and how good a mix those are. His wife, Jan, of 60 years, one time was asked by a group of people, uh, especially moms who are trying to figure out how to raise their families, What's, what do I need to do? Uh, what are some, some things I can do in my home to help instill biblical values in my family? How can I help? What, what do I need to do to raise my kids right? It's such a challenging, challenging season. Uh, what's important to make sure that my kids grow up knowing what's right and knowing my love for them and the Lord's love for them. And her only advice was, have a family meal every evening. It sounds old-fashioned. It sounds overly simple. But folks, I can't tell you how much of a difference it makes. Have a family meal every evening. When, when the dining room table has been relegated to the sidelines, one of the, we, we lose so much, we sacrifice so much. One of the great secrets of strong families, one of the great secrets of having rich, meaningful relationships as a family, one of the, one of the great secrets of pulling this off is not exotic vacations, is not having the greatest car, is not having the greatest house or the yard or, or anything like that. The, one of the great secrets to having thriving families is having a family meal every evening. And all I can tell you is that it works. And so if you have young children home, if you're starting out with a family, all I can tell you is, it, I know it's hard. I know it takes a lot of sacrifice. Make it a priority. If you have adolescents, if you have teens at home, it gets even harder as schedules get more complicated and as, as everybody's coming and going. But it's even more important to have those times when you can sit down at the table and look at, look at each other across the table and say, how are you doing? What's going on? What's going on in your world? And just to laugh and joke together and break bread together and take our time that way. And if, if you're alone, if, they, if you're an empty nester or the kids aren't there anymore, or if you've never had kids, it can be easy. I know at times when our kids aren't home, it's, we've got four kids. It's easy on those nights when the kids aren't home to say, we can eat dinner in front of the TV if we want to. We can do whatever we want. We can eat out of a bag in the car. What do we want to do tonight? But it's even more important in those times to slow down, to interrupt the endless cycle of life to sit down at the table and look at each other across the table in the eyes. And if you're alone, invite people in. Carve out times, invite people in, and accept invitations to join people at their table. There's something wonderful about mixing conversations and calories. Well, Andy Gullihorn and Gabe Scott did their high five routine for seven, they've been doing it now for seven years. They started in 2014 and about a year ago, it almost all came to a stop. Uh, Gabe Scott uh, developed a case of encephalitis, 
which in his case meant severe memory loss. He, he was still the same person. He still had the same personality, but all of his stories were gone. He didn't remember anything about his life. He didn't remember who people were. It was all gone. And uh, really traumatic for his family and, and for everyone, of course, and for him. And he was in the hospital. At that point, he was allowed one visitor per day, one visitor at a time. And his wife had been there with him for most of the time. And they had a little daughter. So Andy took a turn to stay with Gabe so that Gabe's wife could go home with their daughter. And so this friend who had been sharing 300 high fives, one high five a week with his buddy, went to the hospital as a stranger. And he spent the night there with, with Gabe. And in the morning, uh, Gabe got up to do something and Andy said, this is going to sound really weird, but when you're coming back, I'm going to walk towards you and I, I need you to give me a high five. <laughs> and Gabe said, you need me to do what? I know, I know, it's really weird. It's kind of embarrassing to ask, but this is just something that we do. And so as you're, as you're coming back, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to walk towards you and I just need you to give me a high five. It would mean a lot to me. And Gabe said, all right. And so Gabe went to do what he needed to do. And on his way back, Andy stood up and they started walking towards each other. And when the moment came, Gabe went and snap, clap, snap, high five. And Andy immediately started crying and said, I can't believe you just did that. And Gabe said, can't believe I just did what? But in that moment, even though he forgot the story, even though he had forgotten all those 300 high fives, his body still knew because of the consistent pattern of meeting together in those moments. His body knew what to do and his heart knew what to do, even if his mind hadn't caught up yet. Gradually, his memories have been coming back. He's starting to remember more and more. It's starting to take time. And, but he says in describing that on CBS Sunday morning, when he was describing that, he said, it's really special to have something, to have something that is this consistent in my life. I am not inviting you to start a weekly high five with a buddy, though maybe that's the right thing for you. I don't know. Just don't do it in my neighborhood. Uh, but what I am inviting you to do is to start something consistent. And if a high five consistently became so meaningful for somebody who lost so many memories, imagine what a meal could do. Maybe it's coffee once a week with a friend. Maybe it's meeting somebody once a week for lunch or a daily meal in your home as a family or breakfast once a week with dad. Some way of establishing these kind of consistent patterns that help to jog our memory. Because there are a lot of families who need something to jog their memory. Your marriage has begun, is, there's starting to be a little bit of drift. And you need something to jog your memory about why you got into this in the first place. Or your family, the schedule has caused there to be a little bit of a drift. And you need something to jog your memory. And in our walks with the Lord, you may be walking with the Lord for a long time and doubts have started to creep in. You're not sure if what you believe anymore and coming to the table can turn our doubts into worship, can open our eyes so that we can see again. So today we're gonna come to the table together. Jesus meets us at our table and he meets us at this table. And this is a family meal. Who can come to this table? family members can. If you have accepted the Lord Jesus as your Savior and as your hope, this table is for you. We, open, we practice open communion here, which simply means if you love the Lord, it doesn't matter if this is your first time here, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is a table for you. Uh, you, you might think, well, you know, maybe I've struggled with temptation this week. Good, come to the table. That's what it's for. 
say, I, I'm having some doubts, I'm having some hesitations, I'm not sure what I believe anymore, come to the table. The pre-wash need not apply. If we were waiting for people to be worthy of this table, we'd be leaving the elements set up and on their own week after week after week, year after year after year. This is for those who need it. And I need it. And you need it. At the cross, Jesus spread his arms out and took on the punishment for our sins, did something for us that we could not do ourselves. And he bore the guilt of our sin and shame so that we could be in a right relationship with the Father. And this morning, maybe if it's a good day for you to join the family and for this to be your first time at the family table with us. I want to invite you to, to pray with me as we do, as we get ready. And then uh, Jesse's going to sing us, help us to sing for a bit and to help us center our attention on the cross and on Christ. But before we do, I want to invite you to come to the family table. I invite you just to pray after me in your heart. Lord Jesus, I'm staking all my hopes on you. You are my hope. I've tried everything else. None of it has worked. I want you. I need you. I've got no place else to turn. Forgive me of my sins. Make me whole. Thank you for inviting me into your family. Inviting me to the family table. Give you thanks in your name. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing just to center our thoughts on Christ. And if you didn't get a chance to get the elements on as you made your way in, you've got a minute to do that as well. And then I'll come back up and lead us through partaking of the Lord's Supper together. Lord Jesus lived briefly, died violently, and rose triumphantly. 
And the night he was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, and said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Same way after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we bring to you all of our brokenness. And as your body was broken, we have been broken too. And we ask that you would heal us in the broken places. We pour out our hearts to you. As your blood was poured out, we pour out our hearts to you and pray that you would fill us up with hopes and dreams worth having as we walk in the fullness of life with you. Thank you for your table. Thank you for your invitation. We pray this in the strong name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's lift our voices one more time as we close our service. Continue to worship the God of grace, the God of mercy, the one who never fails us. If love endured that ancient cross, how precious is my Savior's blood. The beauty of heaven wrapped in my shame. The image of love upon death's frame. 
cross I see freedom When I see that grave I'll see Jesus And from death to life I will sing your praise In the wonder of your grace When I see that cross I'll see freedom When I see that grave I'll see Jesus And from death to life I will sing your praise In the to share a family meal with you this morning and to break bread with one another. And you know the deal with family meals. Everybody's got to clean up after themselves. So if you wouldn't mind taking this out with you as you make your way, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May you know forgiveness, grace, and that he loves you ferociously. Go in peace. Mm -hmm.